Would you pray with me, please? <clears throat> so, Father, here we are. Um, we've, we've dressed up as best we can. And, uh, but on the inside, there's lots of hurt and lots of brokenness and um, the vivid memories of sins that are simply too great for us to bear. And we need grace. We need we need grace that is greater than our sin. And so I pray that in your great kindness, um, you might bring that grace, that mercy to each of us. Just the awareness, the joy, the hope, the peace that there is a grace in Christ greater than our sin. Um, so by your spirit and your word, bring that to us powerfully, God. Um, I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, some of you know my story. I, uh, I grew up in the Midwest in a little tiny town in the middle of a cornfield in central Illinois. And uh, as the youngest of three kids, born to uh, Betty and Lawrence Trotter. And uh, my dad, my dad was a really good man. Um, you know, when, when you grow up with your your dad's just your dad. That's all you think of him. But, uh, you know, he and that little village in the middle of that cornfield, uh, he was, he'd started his own business with my uncle. Uh, my dad did uh, paint and body work, and my uncle was a mechanic, and they served that little community. And uh, he, at one point in time, he was the president of the Metamora Businessman's Club. Uh, the name of the town was Metamora. I, I was a Metamoron. Um, <laughs> He was the president of the PTA at one time. He was a member of the town board. He was even the president of the church council for a while. Uh, he's, he's a good man. And um, back in 2007, I got the phone call from my, my brother that, jeez, um, it's, it's been eight years. It's like yesterday. Huh? My dad was in the hospital, and he, he wasn't coming home. And so, you know, when you, when you get that call, you start thinking, thought, you know, what are, what are you going to do? I'm in North Carolina, and my dad's in Illinois, and um, so I called back later that night, and I had my brother hold uh, the phone up so I could say goodbye to my dad. And as I tried to sort out, what do you say in a time like that, um, the Lord impressed upon me that there were three things I need to share with my dad. And the first um, was just that I loved him. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't say that a lot in our family verbally. Uh, we showed it all the time. But I knew this was a time I needed, dad needed to hear it from me. Um, I wanted to let him know that it had always been a privilege uh, to be his son. You know, in, in that little Midwestern town, if you were Lawrence Trotter's son, um, that could get you out of trouble. Uh, you could play that card, and uh, I had been, always been um, blessed uh, to be his son. And then the last thing that I felt like the Lord wanted me to communicate to my dad over the phone were, were two things Jesus said from the Gospel of John. 
Jesus said in chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, whoever hears my word and believes, him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but, but has passed from death to life. And then if you just flipped over another page or so, Jesus said again, This is the will of my Father, that everyone, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on that last day. And those, those two verses were amongst the very last words that I spoke to my dad before he went to be with the Lord. Um, you know, and the question that I want, I want us to think about this morning is, was that enough? And what I, was I right? When I said to my dad that all he had to do was look to Jesus and believe, was that enough? I mean, was there, was there something more that I should have said? Was there something more that he needed to do? Um, and really, I want us all to think about that today because there are going to be for all of us, all of us who, who follow Jesus, there are going to be those times when we linger after work and there's a conversation with a coworker, and they're at a point in life where they want to know, how can I be right with God? Is that enough? Is it enough to just say, look to Jesus and believe? You're going to have conversation with a neighbor. They're going to come over and things are going to take that turn that you've prayed they'd take. What do you need to say? What do they need to do? Um, you know, we're all going to sit in a hospital room by the bedside of a loved one. Um, what do you say? What, what must they do? And if you ever slow down enough to think and reflect deeply on the condition of your own life before God, you know, and you, you actually wonder, what if it was my name that was in that obituary? Um, then you're faced with that question, is it enough? Is it truly enough to just look to, to Jesus and believe. Um, are you sure about that? You know, in Acts, Acts chapter 15 is where we are today. And the Apostle Paul is just wrapping up this first of his missionary journeys. And he's made his way. Whoops. Sorry about that. Somewhere in here. There we go. He's made his way all the way up this area, and he's made his way back now to the city called Antioch, which is kind of where his, his home church was. It really kind of sent him out. Um, and while they are there, we read in Acts chapter 15, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Circumcision, again, was the mark of, of the Jewish covenant, and the Gentiles were not circumcised. And after Paul and Barnabas, it says, had no small dissension and debate with them. 
Okay, that's, that's an understatement. Okay, it's, it's a nice way of saying they had a vigorous knockdown drag out about this matter. Um, because these men were saying, it's, hey, it's not enough. Okay, it's not enough. If you want to be right with God, it's not enough to just look to Jesus and believe. They were saying, you've got to do something more. You need to add something to that look, to that desperate faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. And in this case, they were saying that you had to be circumcised according to the law of Moses. And, and really, this is really an understandable thing for them to say. If you go all the way back to Genesis 17... We read this, God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your house, or not of your offspring, rather, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So to fail to embrace this sign of circumcision was to actually break covenant with God, to be cut off from his people. It was a big deal for the people of Israel, and understandably so. So now when, when Gentiles begin to come to faith in Jesus, and because of Paul's travels, they were coming to faith in Jesus in droves, they're trying to figure out what they're supposed to do with them these uncircumcised Gentiles. And so um, they, were, they suggested they needed to be circumcised. But they were not. And I can't imagine they're particularly excited about being circumcised. Okay, um, but That's not why Paul was concerned. Um, see, he and Barnabas were vehemently opposed to adding as this act, even this sacred act, as a requirement for salvation for entirely different reasons than that. He would write in his letter to the church of the Galatians in the New Testament, Paul says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Essentially, if, if one part of law-keeping was required for right standing before God, where do you stop? Paul says, you've got to keep the whole law, all 600 and some commands, if that's how it works. And you see this is behind their thinking. And down in verse 5, they say, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Okay. And should that happen, then the cross of Jesus is no longer sufficient. Now it has to be Jesus 
plus something. It has to be faith plus something, which was something Paul could not abide. So they had a debate, and they could not resolve it. Um, Verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So they are sent out, Paul and Barnabas and some guys, on a 250-mile-plus journey. Probably took them more than a month to get to Jerusalem to settle this issue there with the church there, the elders and the apostles there. But along the way, Paul's just telling the story in great detail of how uncircumcised Gentiles came to faith in Jesus without question. Um, he has great confidence in what God is doing, offering salvation by grace alone. So verse 4, when they come to Jerusalem, they are welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So you have both parties. Let's call it uh, the Jesus-only party and the Jesus-plus party. Are there presenting their cases before the elders and the apostles. Um, it's interesting to note who that, who that Jesus plus party was, the, the group that were opposed to Paul and Barnabas. Um, first of all, it says they were the party of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees uh, were deeply committed to keeping and protecting the law of Moses, amongst other things. They were often in conflict with Jesus. If you've read the Gospels, the Pharisees were all often in conflict with him, arguing, debating. Um, But here it says this group of Pharisees, they were also believers in Jesus. They had placed their faith in him. And and really, um, it shouldn't come as a huge surprise to us because Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection. They believed in life after death. They believed in the coming Messiah. They were the group likely most dedicated to God's will and keeping the law of Moses. So in some ways, it's not a surprise that they would align themselves with Jesus. But they have this question from their background as Pharisees. They must be circumcised is their issue. I want you to realize the stakes are really high here. They are defining the gospel that would be shared throughout the nations. They're defining the gospel that would come to us in this gathering, in this council in Jerusalem. Now, many moons ago, when I was in college, um, we were trained to use this little booklet. It's called The Four Spiritual Laws. How many of you have ever heard of The Four Spiritual Laws, right? And uh, if you were part of Campus Crusade, now crew, you knew the four spiritual laws inside and out. It was, it was a helpful little way to talk to people about faith in Christ. And those four laws, the first one was that God loved you and had a wonderful plan for your life. The second one was that uh, man is tainted by sin and is therefore separated from God. And as a result, we cannot know God's wonderful plan for our lives. The third law was Jesus Christ is God's only provision for our sin. Through Jesus Christ, we can have our sins forgiven and restore a right relationship 
with God. And fourthly, we must place our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior in order to receive the gift of salvation and know God's wonderful plan for our lives. But the question that's going on in Jerusalem was, hey, will there be five spiritual laws? Okay. Will there be um, something else that has to be added to the simplest of presentations of the gospel? You have to be circumcised, or you have to be baptized, or you have to be churched, or get your act together in some way in order to have a right standing with God. Would it be, they're debating, would it be Jesus plus my efforts in one way or another? Or would faith and grace be enough? Okay. So these two groups have presented their case, and Peter is the next one to speak in verse 7. And Peter the apostle stands up and speaks after there had been much debate. And he says, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And Peter is likely thinking back almost a decade when he had a dream given him by God, a vision, that he was supposed to go to a man named Cornelius' house who was a pagan. He was a Gentile. He was a Roman soldier, a centurion. And when he got there, he found out that Cornelius had had the same dream, that Peter would come to him and speak, of him, the, speak to him the gospel. And his whole house believed, okay? chosen by God to take this message to the Gentiles, Peter was. He says, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So Peter reminds them, again, of his convert, the conversion of Cornelius and his household by the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit. They believed. And he puts it plainly, to entangle salvation with keeping the law of Moses is to make it unattainable. They simply could not bear it. John Polhill says that for the Jew, circumcision was a mark of sanctity and purity, of belonging to God's people and being acceptable to him. But in Cornelius, God had shown Peter that true purity comes not by an external mark, but by faith. You see, the external mark of circumcision was just a sign of an internal work that God was doing. Way back in Deuteronomy. It says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. He goes on, Paul Hill does, and says, Peter's meaning was that the law was something the Jews had not been able to fulfill. It had proven an inadequate basis of salvation for them. Neither they nor their fathers had been able to fully keep the law and so win acceptance with God. And so Peter summarizes the good news beautifully back in verse 11 in our passage when he says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will, by grace. It's all by grace, not a result of works that anyone should boast. You know, one of my favorite definitions of grace is simply that 
you get what you don't deserve. And you don't get what you do deserve. It's grace. But, you know, the beauty of grace is hard to catch in a definition. And there was a professor who understood this. Um, one of his students named Denise Banderman tells this story. She says, in the spring of 2002, I left work early so I could have some uninterrupted study time before my final exam in the youth ministry class at Hannibal LaGrange College in Missouri. When I got to class, everybody was doing their last-minute studying. The teacher came in, said he would review with us before the test. Most of his review came right from the study guide, but there were some things he was reviewing that I had never heard. When questioned about it, he said they were in the book, and we were responsible for everything in the book, and we really couldn't argue with that. Finally, it was time to take the test, and uh, Dr. Tom Hufty, the professor, said, leave them face down on your desk until everyone has one, and I'll tell you to start. She says, when we turned them over, to my astonishment, every answer on the test was filled in. My name was even written on the exam in red ink. The bottom of the last page said, this is the end of the exam. All the answers on your test are correct you will receive an A for the final exam. The reason you passed the test is because the creator of the test took it for you. All the work you did in preparation for this test did not help you get the A. You have just experienced grace. And then, to drive his point home, Dr. Hufty went around the room and asked each student individually, what is your grade? Do you deserve the grade you are receiving? How much did all your studying for this exam help you achieve your final grade? And then after he'd gone around to every student, he said, you know, some things you learn from lectures and some things you learn from research, but some things you can only learn from experience. You have just experienced grace. 100 years from now, he said, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your name will be written down in a book and you will have had nothing to do with writing it there. That will be the ultimate grace experience. See? And, and grace, it's one of those things, if you mess with it, if you add to it, even the best of things, okay? Good, God-honoring things, if you add those to grace, like these believing Pharisees were trying to do, when you add anything to grace, you corrupt it. In essence, you deny it. Do you ever do that? Do you ever in your mind think that, that the grace might not be enough? And so you've got supplemental good things you're doing to try to fill in the gaps with God. There are lots of people who do that today. There are, there are churches that do that. And I think like the believing Pharisees, they have the best intentions. Some would say you have to look to Jesus and add something sacred in order to be saved, to be right with God, like baptism. Others would say you have to look to Jesus and give up some sacrilege 
Some would say smoking or drinking or carousing or some culturally unacceptable behavior, maybe even some particularly unacceptable sin. You have to give that up before. Essentially, you must clean yourself up before you look to Jesus, they say. So in their thinking, it's not enough to just look to Jesus and believe. Something else has to come alongside some very good and sacred act or the giving up of something really shameful. But Peter says, if we do that, even if it's a good thing, a God-honoring thing, which it almost always is, if we make it look to Jesus plus something, plus anything, Peter says we are making salvation unattainable because we are making it something other than the gift that we need it to be. Instead, Peter says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Okay. Period. Period. 1,500 years, this battle would come up later, and Martin Luther and the reformers who fought for the same truth would, would call it sola gratia. By grace alone, sola fide, by faith alone, nothing else. We will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus alone. And interesting enough, those are the last recorded words of Peter in the book of Acts. That's his legacy. Okay? That's how it ends for him. Now, following Peter's testimony, it was Barnabas and Paul's turn to speak. And in verse 12 there, all the assembly, it says, fell silent after Peter spoke. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done among them through the Gentiles. They stored, told stories of God's attesting to the salvation of these uncircumcised Gentiles with great miraculous signs and wonders. Irrefutable attestations of God's work. And then they passed the ball to James. Now, James was the half-brother of, of Jesus, a former skeptic, who was now evidently one of the very key leaders in this church in Jerusalem. And this is what James says. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, has related how God has first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written. So what he's saying is that what Peter has claimed and what Paul and Barnabas have attested to, that uncircumcised Gentiles have been saved and made part of God's people, is true and the scriptures predicted it. The prophets said it would be so. And in particular, he's going to cite the prophet Amos. This is what Amos said, according to Peter. After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. That's God's people, Israel, that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles, all the nations, all the other races, all the other peoples who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. So James says that Amos and the prophets teach us that God's people were being restored. The Jews were being rebuilt and restored 
so that the rest of humanity, the rest of the Gentiles and the nations who are called by the name of the Lord may seek the Lord. That God has chosen a people in order to reach all peoples. And what Peter said happened to Cornelius where God took a ruined fisherman and rescued him and chose him to share the good news about Jesus with the Roman soldier in his household. This was a fulfillment of what the prophet said should happen. That the people would be restored. That all nations who are called by the Lord might believe. And this, what the scriptures teach, is the decisive argument that ends the debate. And James makes this decree. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. What that means is that if we add to grace even the best of works, we are troubling those who are trying to turn to God because they simply cannot. We are asking them to do that which they simply cannot do, to stand before God even in part on their own merit. James says no. Peter says no. Barnabas and Paul say no. Salvation is all of grace. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to be good enough. You cannot. And I ran across this uh, story from a guy named Tom Allen. He's a former Army Ranger. And he writes about what happened when he finally saw the movie uh, Saving Private Ryan, which has some Army Rangers going to rescue uh, Private Ryan. He says, I was extremely proud until the last minute of that movie. And he explains. He says, as the movie began, I was proud watching the rangers take Omaha Beach. And then the story begins when they receive a mission to go deep into enemy territory to save Private Ryan. They hit skirmish after skirmish, and some of them are killed along the way. And they finally get to where Private Ryan is holed up, and they say, come with us. We've come to save you. And he says, I'm not going. I have to stay here because there's a big battle coming up, and if I leave my men, they're all going to die. So what do the rangers say? They say, we'll stay here and fight with you. They all stay and fight, and it's gory and hard, and almost everyone dies except Private Ryan. And at the end, he says, one of the main characters, played by Tom Hanks, is sitting on the ground. He's been shot, and he's about to die. The battle, though, has been won. Private Ryan leans over to him, and Tom Hanks whispers something to him. He says, everybody in the theater is crying because Tom Hanks is about to die. He said, but, but I, was, I was crying because of what Tom Hanks said. He said it was terrible. Private Ryan bent down and Tom Hanks said, earn this. You remember that? Earn this. He says, the reason that made me angry is no ranger would ever say, earn this. Why? Because the ranger motto for the past 200 years has not been, earn this. The ranger motto for the past 200 years has been, sua sponte, I chose this. I volunteered for this. He says, so when Private Ryan bent down, if Tom Hanks was really a ranger, he would have said, sua sponte, I chose this. This is free. You don't pay anything for this. I give up my life for you. That's my job. And then he says, so when you look at the cross and see Jesus hanging there, 
What you do not hear is earn this. You never hear Jesus say, earn this. He doesn't say, I've given everything for you. Now you need to gut it out for me. What he says essentially is sua sponte. I volunteered for this. You don't have to pay anything for it. Salvation is a gift of grace at the greatest cost, the life of God's Son on the cross to bear not only not his sin, but our sins. My sin. Unmerited, undeserved, all sufficient, without any addition. Salvation is a gift of grace. So what that means is that what I told my dad eight years ago was enough. Okay. When I said everyone who looks on the sun and believes in him will have eternal life and Jesus will raise him up on the last day. That's enough. Grace is enough. Paul, Paul was transformed by this. He couldn't get away from it. And so he wrote these words later in, in one of his letters to another church in the book of Ephesians. They're famous words. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace. Grace is enough for Paul and for Peter and for Cornelius, for my dad, for me. It's enough for you. You don't have to earn this. Okay. Grace is enough. What Jesus did in your place is enough. Now, my job would have been a whole lot easier if the story would have ended right there. But James continues, and he says something that is totally puzzling. Um, she says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Okay. So he has just spent this entire debate proving that you should not add even one thing, right? Not even one thing, not even some significant sacred thing like circumcision to the Jews, to the gospel. Don't even add it. Instead, let's add four things, okay? I got four things that the Gentiles need to do. What? In the, talk about troubling somebody. Let's add four things that they have to do. Now, wh why did he do that? What's this all about? The troubling thing is he doesn't tell us. He does not explain what he's doing. He says it twice. They're going to write a letter. He's going to include this in the letter. It's recounted in the rest of the chapter. Uh, but he doesn't tell us. But that tells us something in and of itself. Um, if he just spent all this debate discerning that nothing needs to be added to grace and faith, and then he added four things, he would spend the rest of the New Testament explaining what he did, right? But because there's no explanation, what we know is that the understanding that his hearers had of this had to be that these four things he desired for the Gentiles to do, but they were unrelated to procuring their right standing with God, right? Their salvation didn't have anything to do with their salvation. That's why he could just say them and move on. No explanation. 
Because they weren't related. Not directly. Not causally. So, um, let me give you some examples of ways you can understand this because there's a plethora of un- ways to understand how, what, why he might have said these things. I'll give you the top three. Okay? The first one is that these four things... Um, abstaining from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood, actually were not related to salvation, but they were uh, not even part of the law of Moses primarily, but they, were, they preceded that. And so they are laws that govern the conduct of God's people for all time. For instance, abstaining from blood. If you go back to Genesis, all the way back to Genesis, before, no, before Moses, the time of Noah... It says, you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. And so what that, what that means, of course, is that uh, when you go back to grandma's house and she serves up that blood sausage, if you believe this is the right answer, then no way am I partaking of that. You sh- trust me, you shouldn't eat the blood sausage anyway. It just creeps me out. But um, if you're understanding that these are timeless laws meant to govern the behavior of God's people... Um, then, then you would believe that those things, those four things. Right? So that's how some people would say they're, they're guidance, timeless guidance for the conduct of God's people to live right before him, not necessarily to earn their salvation. Though. Second way to think about it is that there are pagan practices these Gentiles were involved in that James wants them to stay away from so they don't fall back into their idolatrous practices, these four things. And that could very well be true. A third answer would be that um, these are uh, all things that the book of Leviticus required of Gentiles who were amongst God's people as converts to Judaism. And they were expected to do these four things in order to not upset their Jewish um, brothers who were following the law of Moses in its entirety. So it was expected of them to do that, not, uh, in that case, not, for, not as requirements for salvation, but requirements for Gentile be- believers to have fellowship with their Jewish brothers without offense. These four things would have deeply offended the Jews. It's kind of like what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 8, when he says, if food makes my brothers stumble, he's talking about food sacrificed to idols, he said, I'll never eat meat, okay, lest I make my brothers stumble. And these four things would have made their Jewish brothers stumble. So he says, you should not do that. Now, all of these answers are um, problematic. They're all helpful. They help us see that there are many ways to think about this that don't require these to be stipulations for salvation. There are other ways to understand this. And I lean towards that last um, explanation, that it's about fellowship with Jewish believers. And in fact, that's what Paul was probably talking about in 1 Corinthians and Romans and other places like that. But at this point in time, um, the remainder of the chapter is given over to the leaders writing a letter with these findings in it that they send to the Gentiles. So the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are writing a letter to send to the Gentiles in Antioch to ease their concerns about these matters, right? It's fascinating. You have people of one race writing to believers of other races, concerned for them, concerned that doctrine is right for sure, 
but also concerned to protect the unity of the body of Christ across racial and cultural and ethnic barriers. You get a sense for how much they love one another and value the unity of the church as well as the purity of the gospel. And the heart of the letter is that there are no other requirements placed on the Gentiles except for these four requirements of fellowship. Um, And it says in verse 31, as a result, when they read that letter, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Because it meant that grace was enough. They didn't have to get circumcised. They didn't have to keep the Jewish law. They didn't have to become Jews. They just had to look to Jesus in desperate faith as people of their race and culture. They didn't have to change. Change cultures. Grace was enough. Faith was enough. Now, do you believe that that's true for your friends? who are on the outside of the kingdom looking in. Can you with confidence tell them that all they need to do is look to Jesus, his work on the cross and his resurrection and believe? They don't have to clean themselves up first. They don't have to stop smoking or cussing or chewing or start coming to church or get baptized. They just have to look in faith to Jesus as their sin bearer and their king And God's great grace, greater than their sin, will be poured out on them. Can you offer that with full confidence that it's enough? It's enough for your friends, for your family. Um, Can you look yourself in, in the eye in the mirror and believe that it's enough for you? That you don't have to be working alongside it. So that you have something to show God to merit it. That you don't have to fix yourself up first. Are you willing to look, just look to Jesus, to his death on the cross for the sins of the world as your only great sufficient hope and rescue from your sins? See, because if you're willing to do that, then no less than Paul and Barnabas and James and Peter and the prophets all say that that's enough, that grace is greater than your sin. And if you will just look to Jesus, who died on the cross for the sins of the world, and believe in him, your sins will be washed away and you will be made right with God. You'll leave the kingdom of darkness, move into the kingdom of light. You'll become a child of the Father, his son or daughter, beloved. And if you want to say yes to that, while, while the believers here in the room, um, as we celebrate the Lord's table, you should just bow your head and talk with God about that. That you know you need grace greater than your sin and you believe that Jesus bought that for you on the cross. And talk to him about that. Trust in him about that. But for the rest of us, we have a chance to remember this grace that's greater than our sin as we approach the table. Who here is worthy to approach this table? Who deserves this table? No one. Not a one of us. And yet all 
are invited by a grace that's greater than our sin. And at this table, we remember what we sung about earlier, the height and depth and width and breadth of the love of God for us, poured out in Christ. We remember his body broken and his blood poured out for our forgiveness to wash our sins away. And so in obedience to him, we remember that on the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Jesus, what you have done for us, to stand in our place, to bear our sins, to take away the penalty. And we don't have to do anything. It's almost too good for us to believe. And yet we believe, we trust, we hope in you alone. And as we draw near to this table to have communion with you, at the meal you invited us to, we worship you and we give you thanks that there is no sin greater than that which you have done for us. There is nothing we have to work off on our own. We cannot. For you have done it for us in love and we worship you now with our obedience. And this we pray in your name.
Sarah.